there is this innate human religious impulse. And in our modern society, there is a strong push from an atheistic perspective, not only to say Christianity isn't true, but to say all religions are figments of our imagination, right? And in actually in, in studying different religious expressions, we are actually preparing our students to see the religious impulse is universal. Welcome to Classical Etc. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. And today's topic is classical studies. We're going to get into how we introduce our students to classical studies in some of the earlier classical studies. But before we get there, Paul, I want to ask you, do you have a favorite story from classical studies or maybe your first classical legend or myth that you read? You know, the one that I, as time has gone on, the stories have faded um, from my memory. But the one I, I just can never forget is Daedalus and Icarus. Like I, yeah. I'll get, I'll get the story of Medusa mixed up with you know whatever mm-hmm. else. But Daedalus and Icarus, I can always remember the that story, and just you know the story of of pride or you know the and what's going to happen if you fly too too close, too close to the sun. To the sun. Yeah. Are there have there been moments in your life where you've been an Icarus? Is this the the moral of the story? I I don't know that I want to get into that. Oh, well, you used that. to have a t-shirt that said... I have um, multiple, multiple yes, t-shirts that you gave I me. I brought you one. <laughs> yes, I brought him one that says I'm awesome. No, 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 no. <laughs> Yours, the one you gave me said, um, let's, uh, uh, to save time, let's just assume I'm never wrong or something along those lines. Yeah. <clears throat> something yeah. along those lines. Nice. So yeah. no, Paul hasn't suffered from pride at all. Never, never. Interesting. Tanya, what about you? Favorite story, first one you read? I do suffer from pride, and so I feel like we should explain that we're doing two podcasts in one day and that I don't wear the same clothes two days in a row. Oh, sure. Or even two weeks in a row. Oh, sure. Everyone know that. Is there a story that... that oh, that so to? my favorite story, I'm going to go with Greek mythology too. Sure. I love Persephone and Demeter, mm. and I love that connection to the seasons and... Um, to me, it always seemed really impressive that they came up with that to, you know, to talk about the change in the seasons and the weather and that when it's winter, she's in the underworld. I'm fascinated with that. But my favorite, probably my favorite experience with all of that was because the first year I taught, I taught famous men of the Middle Ages. And mm-hmm. so I loved all of those stories about those characters because my kids loved my, you know, my sure. students loved them. And so that's, that was probably my favorite experience with them. Yeah. I think a favorite for me is the story of Junius Brutus. Um, the early Junius Brutus who overthrows Tarquin's superbus. Oh yes, And he becomes one of the first two consuls of Rome, but then his, his sons end up scheming to overthrow the new Republic and he ends up having to condemn them. And that's as, your favorite. As traitors. It's a, it's an interesting story in that Junius Brutus is both a part of the setting up of the Republic, but then also his, you know, a lot of stories it seems like would end there. Like he mm-hmm. would have been a hero if he had just been one of the first consuls. But the fact that he also made that first generation could have changed the course of history if the Republic had fallen right away and he held it together, whether what he did was good or or not, Mm. he held the Republic together and it became one of the most powerful political forces in human history. 
Um, and so an interesting character for that reason. And I think that's why, um, you know, Shakespeare makes a lot, there's a lot of double entendre with the character of Brutus and reference back to Junius Brutus, but then the Brutus of Julius Caesar era. Um, just an interesting character. Martin, what about you? Like a Greek tragedy. Yes. Well, and you know, we learned those things, uh, you know, all, all those standard classical stories, you know, when I was really young back, you know, in the primordial mists of time. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I but I, I, I don't, the, 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 if, if I'm asked what one do I, do I really like, or that was influential or whatever, I think it, it, it's from things that I did later in life and teaching mm. being, being one of them. And we used to, we used to have, we used to teach, um, uh, uh, I taught out of uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's wonder book and Tanglewood tales. You know, these are great stories retold by a great writer. I don't know why we don't have those I, in our I, curriculum well, I was going to bring that up again, mm-hmm. actually. But, um, uh, but the, which are just retellings of the old classic Greek tales kind of set um, in, uh, in the Northeast. Um, and so the one I remember the best has always been uh, Midas and the Golden Touch. Mm. Um, and and that, cause that's a pretty straightforward story too. I mean, the way Hawthorne tells it, he has these great uh, things he kind of adds to the story that are just so vivid. But, uh, but that story is a very straightforward story and it's so applicable <laughs> to so many things mm. that uh, you have, you have a lot of excuses to, to call it up from memory, but, but that's the one I, I yeah, think. It's a good one. So Tanya, a lot of schools in, in this movement, a lot of classical schools will ask me when they're talking to me about their curriculum, how do we incorporate classical education into the youngest years? Part of what we wanted to talk about with this conversation is how we've thought through the beginning of introducing our students to classical stories and classical legends and myth. How do we do that at Memorial Press and Hounds Island School? What's the thinking behind how we introduce students to these great stories? It's Cheryl Lowe's thinking behind it. Um, she didn't want to introduce it in K-2. And when she was putting all the curriculum together, she, you know, everybody was doing that, um, that cycle. That, so they were doing ancients in kindergarten and I guess Greece and Rome in first and the Middle Ages in second. And she, um, she felt like that was not the best use of K-2 time that they needed to learn how to read fluently, how to write fluently, and and their basic math facts, and that that should be the core of their time, and that these stories were not age-appropriate for K-2, that they needed more fairy tales and lighter, um, more stories that would be more interesting on their level, which she was really big on. I mean, that's why we don't do... Um, we don't study history chronologically either, which is really different from anybody else because we do Roman history before Greek history. Mm-hmm. And the reason she does that or the reason she set it up that way was because Roman history is easier. And um, she always said, you know, Greece never unified. Half the people were traitors, young students just aren't ready to deal with those things and Rome was one empire it rose it fell it has a beginning it has an end and it it's like a straight path mm. and so much more age appropriate for younger students and it works out fine because we after we do 
famous men of Greece, then then they read Homer the next year. So it really is a nice way to segue to a a primary source. And she chose mythology for third grade because the stories are just fun. They're fantastical. And on a third grade level, it was really all about the best use of our time in a particular grade and what was age-appropriate content for that grade. So, Paul, we move in the classical studies program into stories when we get into classical studies in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, stories of Greek mythological heroes, gods, titans. What's the importance of steeping them in these stories? Why not also cover maybe more in-depth history? Is the classical studies trajectory light in history? Well, we're they are going to get the history Right. I mean, we're, we're doing both mythological story and history in those younger years, right? I mean, third grade, no, third grade's all mythology, but when you, when they hit the famous men books, they may start in mythology and they, then they get into history, uh, or well, rather mythology legend than history. Um, and, and what you're getting out of that mythology is you're getting an understanding of their culture and what they, what they hold up as a model. Um, and, and the, the, the stories of warning to their own, to, to themselves, uh, you know, and you write the story of, of Pandora, right. That you, you open this chest and all these horrible things fly out, but you know, she tries to close the chest and she ends up containing hope within it. Mm. And that being the thing that no matter what is going wrong, like we can always have this hope, and and you end up seeing that in in the just the sheer determination they have sometimes in the battles that go on. Um, you've the the past at Thermopylae, right? Where mm-hmm. I, why would three hundred people be able to stand against right? Because they have this idea of hope, right? That's that's embedded in their in their traditions, and so it's it's important for us to understand what they hold as models before we even try to look at their history. And it gives us uh, gives those students a fuller appreciation for what's go- what happened, what what went on in that history, um, because it's not just names and dates of this happened at this point, but rather like this is this is a part of a whole culture, a whole civilization that has values that uh, we can understand based on these stories. Martin, same question. A lot of schools in fourth grade, for instance, are going to be required in the United States to or not required, but they're going to be offering a state history, like a Kentucky history or Wisconsin history when I was in fourth grade. But we, in our history, are studying the Greek, or the the famous men of Rome, and we're telling these stories about these ancient heroes. What's the value of that? And are students missing something if they don't do state history and then world history and the United States history? Well, I mean, I, I think state and local history are important. You need to do that at some point. But, um, but your state culture is a part of a larger culture in the United States and the United States is part of, uh, you know, the, the Western tradition that we got from most directly from England, Europe, and, and ultimately Greece and, uh, the middle, middle East. So I think, I think it's important to teach these stories early on history and literature are two of what in classical education we would call the moral sciences. They're the vehicles which transmit uh, the, the ideals and values of the Christian West. And that's the purpose of classical education. 
So it's, it's really important that we teach these stories. Myth comes from the Greek word mythos, which means meaning. So uh, you're, you know, while in history you're getting factual stories, they have mean, they still have, they also have meaning. And then in the stories themselves that are just stories that are, that are mythical, uh, they, they, they don't, they're not factual. Um, although they, they say a lot of true things about uh, we, us as human beings, but they all have meaning in them. And, and that meaning is really the most important thing that we need, we have to transmit. Uh, that's, 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 that meaning is, you know, is made up of our ideals and values. And it's so much better to teach them that way than just simply on some kind of uh, analytic factual basis, because we don't remember them. Uh, facts need a context and the best context for a fact to be in is a story, um, a narrative, because it's only in a narrative where anything has any meaning. It's only in a story that anything has meaning rather than just factuality. And so I'd say, I think the stories are central to what we do. So, um, Tanya, I want to come to you and lay a practical groundwork for these famous men books, because that's where the classical studies really blossoms. Um, and that is, can you kind of talk about how these books actually work in a homeschool setting or in a, in a classroom setting? What are, what are the goals a teacher should have for the <coughs> students um, as they're moving through this course? So part of it is... Um, we are doing American history, we're doing geography, we're doing modern studies alongside the classical studies. And the way we're able to get that done is by doing these classical, these famous men books are very short stories. They're fully illustrated. So you can easily get a story taught, study guide filled out, review drill questions. You can easily do that in an hour to an hour and a half. And so... That's your week. So we're not set, we're not dropping anything. We're literally adding classical studies. But rather than do like that cycle where every fourth year is going to be modern history, we're doing classical studies every year. And modern history is just another block in that same year. So whereas we would spend one day a week on a classical studies lesson, Another day that week would be states and capitals or um, another type of geography or an American history survey. And so we're a, which would also be about an hour and a half less than a week. So, so rather than blocking things out year by year, our students get to study classical history every year and they study modern history every year until we get to middle school and then, you know, the classes start getting bigger um, and things change a little bit. In the lower years, we're doing all of it every year, but just a little bit of years, very manageable. Those stories are very manageable to teach and, and are not that time consuming. And are fascinating for the children. I mean, right, I yeah. just remember right. sitting there, like, I can go back and look at the Dallaire's Book of Greek Myths and I still remember the pictures. Oh, I mean, I just remember just staring at them for hours, you know, just reading and rereading and rereading. Famous Men of Rome was the same way, except I didn't have the illustrated version, so I just had to picture it in my head, text. Oh. The only thing, I, the only thing, I had the cover that had, it had like, I don't know if it was a Roman shield or like a ring, like a, like a signet ring mm, kind of thing. The orange cover? No, it was red. 
it was red, but it was it just had this circular thing on it. And I remember looking at that trying to figure out what in the world that was. It was the only image huh. I had to look at for the entire famous in Rome book. Dollar's Greek Myths, I think, has has a resonance with outside of memory press, outside of classical education. That's a popular book. There's actually a movie that I can't remember the name of that has Robert Pattinson in it, where spoiler alert, he's in the Twin Towers at the end of the movie, and he gets hit. You know, the plane comes into the Twin Towers, but early on in the book, he gives his sister. You mean the movie? In the movie, he gives his sister a copy of Dollar's Greek. Oh, Myths. you're like, kidding! This is my favorite book, and he gives it to her, and I was like, oh, I know that book. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, pretty interesting. It is. It's a beautiful book. And we would also put Bible stories in in the same. Yes, and the same thing. We're studying Christian studies every single year, Mm -hmm. too, alongside classical studies and alongside modern modern studies. And so some, you know, a lot of times people think, hang on, you're, you're teaching mythology one hour, and then the next day for an hour you're teaching Christian studies. Don't students get confused? They never get, I've never had a confused student. I mean, they know because we're teaching one as fantasy and the other as truth. And so I've never experienced any kind of confusion where a student thought that Zeus was God (laughs) rather than Yahweh. I just don't think it happens. Martin, on that point, these famous men books are putting people out as heroes, not that the book necessarily praises them, but these, these characters are the focal point of each of the individual chapters. And in a book like the famous men of Greece, you cover, we cover characters like Draco and Solon that maybe historically didn't necessarily exist. We don't really know. Um, we're pretty sure they did. We, we have no idea if they did. And I'm sure they did. So, <laughs> oh, but, well, it's, then. <laughs> but it's besides the point, right? The, the Greeks thought they existed. It was a part. So what you you're convinced, but but for those of us who aren't, there's, there's a huge strain of skepticism in modern modern history studies that Martin does not subscribe to. Sure, and so maybe address I, I why don't even in modern if, historians, if you're skeptical, there's still a value to these books, right? And maybe this these books address the skepticism. Well, again, I think particularly for younger kids, their stories first before their facts, mm-hmm. right? And, and you, you do that because again, you're, you're trying to, you know, these stories are not just, uh, uh, the facts themselves aren't interesting. They're only interesting in relation to each other in a, in a story, in a plot in, line. In relation to the characters. In, in relation to the characters. Um, and so they're, that, that story first approach, um, is, is putting them in a context where you can understand the meaning of them. And then also, you know, somebody, I was don't remember where I was. And somebody said, do you have a character education program at your school? And I said, yes, history and literature. Uh, Because that's what it is. Right. We, we don't, we don't, uh, you know, these programs that, you know, have the value for the week and you discuss this abstractly is, I don't think that has any effect at all. What you remember is how a certain character act in a, acted in a certain situation in a story that you read. And then your response is either attraction or revulsion. And if it's a good story, it's going to attract you to the right thing and you're going to have revulsion to the wrong thing. And you're, you, you act morally, you, the way you learn morality is by imitation, by imitating good things and good people and good stories. That's, that's what really has an impact on children. And so, so history and literature 
are really should be the primary means of character education in any school. Paul, similar question, but another way to approach it is that, you know, in Famous Men of Greece, for instance, there are characters on both sides of the Peloponnesian War that are main Mm -hmm. characters of the book. So how do you present these stories to students with the complexities, the geopolitical and the ethical complexities that are way beyond these students, but that modern educators tend to fixate on as they're thinking about teaching history? Well, I just don't even, I, these are kids, right? <laughs> I, now, granted, Famous Men of Greece, these are kids that are getting to a point where they are, they're starting to deal with more of the gray that happens in life and, and, and they've got more, more intellectual bandwidth, if you will, to understand that who's coming from where, right? That's why we're not doing Famous Men of Greece in fourth grade. But at the same time, you know, the, there's, I think Greece actually affords us a great opportunity for kids to, to be on either side of the argument and, and say they, this Sparta has a reason for what it's doing. And another child in the classroom said, well, Athens has a reason for doing what it's doing. I mean, the same thing happens when you teach the Iliad. Right. You have kids who fixate on, well, Hector's the good guy and other guys like I like Achilles. Right. And and what they allow us to do is actually discuss in respectful ways how people can disagree about certain things and in the Greek way it, it come to war over them, but understand that most of the time when we're dealing with another human person that disagrees with us, we're both trying to come from a rational point of view. We're both coming from some legitimate perspective and, you know, we can, we can work through that and, and realize that even though all the Trojans may be backing up Paris and what he did was, was abominable, but it's still extremely touching to see Hector leave his son you know, to go and fight in defense of his, of his country. Right. And, and you, you start dealing with that. Famous in Greece, you do start dealing with that stuff. And, but it's, it's done at a level where we're not trying to get into, as Martin said, I mean, it's all, it's all stories. So it's all got meaning. Right. And it's not just, well, you know, if we, if we ultra analyze this, we end up with, with the aggressor and we've got the, the, the person that the, the folks that aren't the aggressors. And so therefore these are the bad guys and these are the good guys. It's, it's and, much more nuanced and, than that. You know, th- this is why we simplify these stories for younger kids. Cause they're not ready to deal with those complexities yet. And for younger kids, I mean, um, you, you just need to, to get them to understand the main meaning of the story and the main action and characters that are very stark and they're either good or bad and you can tell them apart easily so that that's what you got to establish first. And then you can build on that so that later on you're dealing with some of the complexities of these stories. Uh, Hector and, and Achilles is a great, is a great example of that. Um, and then you get into some interesting character analysis because Achilles is a more complex character than Hector. Mm-hmm. He's, 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 uh, he's capable of greater heights in greater depths yep. than Hector is. And you have to understand. So, you know, that's, that's what I love about a lot of stories because kids, you know, they have people in their lives, but they're meeting people in stories that they'll never meet in their lives, but that they will. 
one day. And so they need to understand how personalities work and how, you know, to say somebody's good and say somebody's bad. Well, there's some complexities there that's a mixed bag. You know, there's, there's some people who, everybody has good and bad in them. How do you parcel that out? And it, so that they can understand what a human being is, because that's what we're training people to do is to be better human beings. I think that's a great point is that when we're teaching, because we're teaching based on an individual every week, every week is focused on a different individual. We are focused on what it means to be human rather than just a list of historical facts. Mm-hmm. It makes me very excited. <laughs> I just think those books are so fun to teach because of the they are simple, but as complex as your students can deal with. Right. And just the the idea that you can help students see, whether you agree or not, but to be able to see both sides and see the incentive for the actions that both took. And then, you know, you'll eventually be able to judge one way or the other. But not everything is black and white. And that is why she chose Rome first, because Rome is more black and white. Sure. Greece is gray. So... um so it is, by the time they get to sixth or seventh grade, they are ready to start dealing with that more um, complex. Yeah. Do you think that there's this this sense like we have to be, that historicism, kind of this need for historical accuracy has driven away our ability to see the value in stories? And I, I'm thinking specifically in Famous Men of Rome. You know, Martin, I don't know, maybe you think Romulus is real? A real person? <laughs> Yes. And he's currently a deity. Um, but yeah, there's chapters of... <laughs> I love how you just threw that into his mouth, like right at the very end. There's chapters about Romulus and Remus in the same way that did George Washington cut down the cherry tree? Yes. Well, probably not. But that story is important for our conception of national origins, right? That that story itself tells something that's maybe more true than the reality. And it's not that there isn't a room for, and that we shouldn't as careful educators show what's fact and what's fiction. But I think if we're too scared of the power of, we can be scared of the power of story and, and not, and shy away from telling these stories that were very powerful for the Romans. At least they, they, there's a reason they told these stories. we're, We're not only training their intellects, we're training their imagination. Yes. Yes. So we move from a imagination oriented curriculum, the famous men books, which is a lot, a lot of, straight history, but great stories mm-hmm. to the Dorothy Mills books. Tanya, how do those books work and what are we trying to do with those? So those are less um, character driven and more overview of history driven. So we've our, we've introduced our students to the main characters through the famous men books. So now we're going to go back and actually study the overview of the history on a middle school level. And that's literally just to prepare us then to read Homer or Virgil when we do the Mills Rome book. Um, So it is another level up and we're dealing more with dates and with chronology than with actual characters. But hopefully all those characters that they've studied will still be alive for them when they do this more complicated overview of history. And then we, you know, then in high school, we do it again, but they're reading primary sources at that point. They're reading Cicero and they're reading Greek tragedies and they're reading. Um, City of God. 
Well, ooh. some philosophy. Yeah, the city of God. Um, I can't remember the one. Boethius, Constellation of Philosophy. No, good gracious. It's a great book. Boethius. It's a great book. Okay, I'm not there yet. Um, we do have our seniors read that in the apologetics class. They no, are. No, in, in metaphysics. metaphysics it's in Paul's years. course. Right. Do you know the course where we're going to one day have a study guide? One day. No, I don't believe that. <laughs> we have a That's study guide. Real no answers. Romulus. We have a study no guide answers, with no answers. No answers. So Martin Tunney addressed it a little bit, but I think it becomes more, in my mind, more pertinent later, even though we probably get this question earlier. And that is when we start doing the history of ancient Rome, we're studying ancient Roman religion and the history of Greece. We study their religious system. What's the value in studying these ancient false religions and the Greeks and gods that these people worshipped? And is there any threat to Orthodox Christianity or the students from studying these? Well, when you're when you're studying pagan religions, you're studying this attempt by man to attain this knowledge of the high highest things. It's this very uh, bottom up movement. Whereas when you're dealing with the Hebrews, you're talking about very much a top-down thing. It wasn't like the Hebrews were philosophers searching for it. It was just given to them. And so uh, the interesting thing about that whole historical process is that by the time you reach uh, the golden age of Greece, um, you know, there have been all these, you know, you, you, you for the first time with the Greeks have, have this question, um, what what is ultimate reality? They're asking these universal questions, which nobody before was asking. And, and it, as it worked out, it started going more and more to the, to, to, so that by the time of Plato, you get this very, um, uh, um, this deductive, uh, uh, monotheism. I mean, I mean, Socrates is talking about God now singular. Uh, clearly they've moved to, so, so they're, they're, they're going in the right direction because they are people made in the image of God. And so their souls have this this natural need. And so by the time you get to the golden age of Greece, you're 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 getting something fairly close. You know, the the Hebrews already have a divine revelation. And so you get these two traditions, Athens and Jerusalem, and they 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 start to come together. And so that so that and they come together at the point where John at the very in the first sentence of his gospel said, because the, the Greeks have been asking, what is the logos? They're asking what that is, this organizing principle behind the universe. And John says, in the beginning was, was the Logos. That right there. And because everybody would have understood, anyone who was a thinker would have understood what that word meant. Um, and so right there you have this identification of, uh, of, of the search of the pagans and the answer that was provided by the Hebrews and, and ultimately Christ and so then you get Paul, who's, who's, who was where the synthesis comes together. Paul is a very well classically educated writer. When I was writing my logic books and my rhetoric book, and I went back and read the epistles, it's like, oh my gosh, this guy's using like textbook examples of these argument forms. You know, he, he, was, he, was, he was very well educated. He was educated in that Greek system. And then when he goes to Mars Hill, he said, the gods, the, the God that you all are searching for, we have. And all so of the, those, So it comes together. All of those um, letters to all of those churches, you know, a lot of that mm -hmm. is Paul fighting pagan religion. Mm -hmm. And so it's good for us to understand, the, and all through the Old Testament, mm -hmm. um, are all the, 
all the people that were worshiping pagan gods. So the better understanding we have of them gives us, I think, a better understanding of the Hebrew people. And there's that sorting out that happens in the first centuries of the church. It's going on in the East in Constantinople with the Cappadocian fathers who are, who are trying to resolve the question, well, what do we do with all this pagan learning? And meanwhile, in, well, actually a little bit later, uh, Augustine in the Latin world in Rome is asking that same question. They're all trying to sort this out, trying to answer Tertullian's question, what hath Athens to do with Rome, with, mm. with Jerusalem? And both the Eastern Church and the Western Church are together on this, that this is the e- Egyptian gold. They both use independently the Egyptian gold argument where, where they point out, look, um, just like the Egyptians showered the Hebrews with their gold as they went out into the wilderness and they used it badly in making a golden calf, for example, but it's the same gold that God, God uh, commands them to use to make the vessels of the tabernacle. Okay, we can use it well or we can use it badly. And it's our responsibility to take these truths that they discovered, again, because they're made in the image of God and they were seeking the truth, and, um, and, and take that and incorporate that in the Christian project. Which we hope we're doing through our curriculum. Well, and, and Shane, I mean, your question, I mean, I think initially was why study the pagans? And Martin made a comment that I wanted to flesh out. I don't remember what the comment was, but I thought, ooh, I want to flesh that out. <laughs> you Which, forgot. Uh, you didn't remember. Yes, okay, yes. Um, <laughs> but, but the point that I wanted to make that Martin alluded to was that there, there is this innate human religious impulse. And in our modern society, there is a, a strong push from an atheistic perspective, not only to say Christianity isn't true, but to say all religions are figments of our imagination, right? And, and actually in, in studying different religious expressions, we, we are actually preparing our students to see that the the religious impulse is universal because it actually points us to something that is outside of us that we do need and that you know and that truth is in the triune well God. and just and just to understand that that when you're comparing religions it's it's it, there's also a contrast and the contrast with Christianity is we're it's the only religion that makes the kind of claim it's making that myth became fact right no the religion even even does that, you know, so you can't really put them in the same category. It sounds like what you guys are all saying is that not only is it okay that students who are Christians study the Greek myths and the Roman heroes and the Greek heroes, it's that they should because it helps them to understand their faith more robustly and hopefully actually draws them into their faith more deeply. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and a, and a good tool for this is, uh, Really good. The last step here is to to call some attention to writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Mm-hmm. Tolkien, who are getting right at this issue. I mean, they're 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 saying this is what Tolkien convinces Lewis of that these these things that that the pagans were reaching for in their mythologies actually historically happened in the gospel story. That's the myth became fact aspect of this, and I think that you know. Uh, young people who are particularly interested in 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 the Chronicles of Narnia and 
the Lord of the Rings and that sort of thing, to see the authors of those saying this, I think is a powerful thing. Absolutely. Did we leave anything else on the bone? (laughs) She's not liking that metaphor. I don't like that metaphor. I'll take that as a, as a, we talked about all of it. All right. Well, I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.